This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, November 23rd. On the pod today, after six weeks of bloodshed and mass destruction, a temporary ceasefire in the Israel Hamas war is set to begin on Friday. If that deal holds, the window will soon open to get some hostages out of Gaza and humanitarian aid in. We'll walk you through how this could all unfold coming up. Plus, the federal government commits billions more dollars to build thousands of homes. The housing minister is here to defend the plan. And conservatives are accused of bullying and harassment by a few independent senators. We'll hear from one who was forced from her home fearing for her safety after her face and phone number were shared online. We begin in Israel, where families are feeling both hope and agony as they count down to a tentative ceasefire. We've been on such a roller coaster for the past, certainly the past uh, week, but since October 7th. I just want to see the children come back. We are all just waiting in anxiety to know what is happening because we want our people back, our children back. In just under seven hours, the fighting is due to stop, and the first of 50 hostages taken by Hamas are expected to be released back to Israel. Meanwhile, Israel continues to bomb Gaza, launching 300 airstrikes in the last 24 hours. This is footage from southern Gaza today, where most of the region's population has evacuated to after Israel designated it as a safer zone. The CBC's Briar Stewart is part of our news team covering this war. She's in Jerusalem. So, Briar, this is obviously a significant moment. How is this going to work? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of details, and I think what officials have been saying is even though both parties are committed to this agreement, uh, it is unpredictable. I mean, these are two warring parties, and I think, um, you know, there really is, nothing is guaranteed, but pe- the, both sides are committed to this deal. And so what will happen is there'll be a break in fighting at 7 o'clock local time, so that's in about seven hours from now. And at that point, that's when we should start to see hundreds of more aid trucks go into Gaza. Trucks will be carrying food, medicine, and fuel, which is, of course, uh, very important. And then uh, later in the day, around four o'clock, we'll start to see uh, the first group of hostages come out. So these will be a group, we're told, of 13 women and children. And we have been told that the families whose loved ones are on that list have been notified uh, today. So after that group comes out, shortly after that, we will see the release of Palestinians who are imprisoned in Israel. And because... um, for every one hostage that is freed, it's about three Palestinians. So we should see almost almost 40 uh, be released uh, tomorrow afternoon. Now, <clears throat> after the hostages are released, uh, they're going to be taken out by the Red Cross. They're going to be going to Egypt, then back into Israel, getting a medical assessment. And we understand that they'll be reuniting uh, with their families at the hospital. And this uh, arrangement, uh, this break in fighting and this, this exchange back and forth, uh, it's supposed to go on for four days, but it could go on much longer if more hostages are released. But there are quite a few unknowns because Hamas has said it doesn't know where all the hostages are, that there are other militant groups uh, excuse me, in Gaza that have them. They need this pause in fighting to be able to do some of the logistical things to see where they are. Uh, officials are even speaking here. I don't really 
believe that, um, but but nevertheless, uh, you know, they, they believe that there were probably about 80 hostages that, that could be freed during all of this if the break in fighting and this agreement holds. Okay, let's just talk a little bit more about that four days, because we don't even know if we're going to get to that point, because the timeline on this has shifted already once this week. How realistic is the hope? Is there any hope of this lasting more than four days, which I know humanitarian groups are keen to see? Well, that's right, because humanitarian groups want to use this break in fighting to uh, access the areas and the people that they have not been able to because of the fighting and also try to just get the aid out to where it is needed. Now, will it last longer than four days? It could a little longer, but but not that much longer, because, as I said, uh, you know, there's there's about 80 hostages that Israel thinks it might be able to get back um, in all of this. And if they go out, uh, you know, 10, 12 a day, maybe we're looking at, at a week or so. But both Hamas and Israel have vowed to keep fighting. In fact, Israel's defense minister said today that over the next couple of months, he's he expects very intense fighting. And uh, they have been signaling that uh, in the south where there has been uh, an increase in bombardments. We're seeing more strikes in Han Yunus, which is where hundreds of thousands have been displaced. Uh, more strikes in Rafah, which is along the um, Egyptian border. They're going to start after this pause uh, a ground operation, and that's really what they have been signaling. So, you know, there, I, I don't think anybody's under the impression that this truce is is going to suddenly kind of lead to a, a lasting peace. And and today, uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been echoing what he and his war cabinet have been saying this whole time: is that their goal is to completely eliminate Hamas. Take a listen. We're committed to getting everyone out, but we'll continue with our war aims, uh, namely to uh, uh, eradicate Hamas, because Hamas has already promised that they will do this again and again and again. They're a genocidal terrorist cult. Uh, there's no hope for peace uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, between Israel and the Arab states, if we don't eradicate this uh, murderous uh, movement. Now, Israel has released what it says is more evidence of this elaborate uh, underground tunnel network that Hamas uses, uh, rooms that they believe is part of a command center underneath the, uh, the Al-Shufa hospital. The director of that hospital, by the way, um, has been detained by Israel for questioning. We understand from health officials there, they say that he was uh, basically taken away while he was coming down uh, in the southern part of the region, uh, evacuating with patients and other medical staff. Um, and of course, all of this, all all of what we're talking about in terms of, um, you know, the aid going in and, and the releases on both sides. I mean, we have to remember that, um, you know, according to health officials in Gaza, more than 14,000 people have been killed in the last seven weeks of fighting. And so having a four or five, maybe even a week long pause um, is really, you know, people in Gaza see it as, as very marginal and, and not significant at all. Okay, Briar, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Briar Stewart in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, aid groups warn the conflict has unleashed a humanitarian catastrophe. The UN and other aid groups are at the Gaza border waiting to deliver desperately needed aid as soon as the ceasefire begins. Samer Abdul-Jabber is with the World Food Program and he joins us now from Jerusalem. Samer, it's good to speak with you again. Good to speak to you again, David. Thank you. Since we last spoke, your organization has, has issued a pretty stark warning uh, about the risk of starvation inside Gaza. Where do things stand on that? I know widespread hunger is a reality, but starvation is a, a whole other level. 
Yeah, David, when we last talked, we were talking about almost 3% of what's needed was going into Gaza. Yes, it has slightly improved 10% by now, but still that's way, way far from what we really need to get into uh, Gaza uh, as food commodities. The food systems have been collapsing. Farmers have not been able to access their land. Fishermen have not been access the sea. Um, the bakeries have stopped completely. Mills have been uh, stopping. So shops, there were some commodities on the, on the shelves. At the moment, there's barely any. Uh, and whatever is there is not things that people can consume because there is no cooking gas, there is no clean water. So people are depending more than ever on basically whatever humanitarian aid we're able to get in at the moment. So, so as a, I, I know there's a proportion of aid you're able to get in compared to what you were able to get in before, but do you have a sense of how much food the average person in Gaza is getting compared to what they need? Like, are they getting half their diet, 10% of their diet, a third of their diet? Do you have that kind of sense of proportion? I don't have the figure on top of my mind, but definitely less than 30% of their needs um, because that's what's available. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I can tell you is many have been uh, basically moving into what we call negative coping strategies, which means that they're skipping meals, they're avoiding basically eating healthy stuff, they're just eating whatever they get their hands on. Um, and that has lots of implications that we are worried about malnutrition and, and uh, basically uh, health-related issues. So that's why we're really advocating to make sure that the, the pipeline of humanitarian aid that includes more kilocalories that those people would uh, take would uh, actually be going and the overall number of trucks since the whole thing started almost a month ago, two days more than a month ago, um, does not represent three days of commodities what were going on before this uh, conflict. So it's really, really uh, uh, nothing compared to before. So as we're speaking on Thursday, and, and things are fluid, uh, but there is the intention of a hostage-prisoner exchange on Friday that would lead to a pause in the military activity. I presume that would create a window of opportunity for extra aid to get in. I know increased aid and more regular aid is apparently also a condition of this agreement. How critical is that pause for your efforts right now, and how much relief do you think you could reasonably get into Gaza in the time that's apparently available? I think we're monitoring this very closely, and we hope that the agreement will be uh, upheld and supported by all the the, uh, parties of the conflict, because like you said, we need to deliver more uh, inside Gaza. We need to make sure that we are able to reach uh, all the areas that uh, there are needs at the moment inside Gaza. Uh, The agreement supports around 200 trucks a day. Uh, logistically, we know that there are lots of challenges to get to that figure, but we are doing everything we can with our partners on the ground to make sure that we are able to actually uh, get that done. We're building warehouses at the moment in, inside Gaza at the borders so that more trucks can just offload and, and, and move. And then internally within Gaza, we, can, we, we, we find arrangements to take it and move it to distribution point. So... We are looking at, from a WP perspective only, 100 trucks available now to go into Gaza. That is more or less enough to feed uh, half a million people inside the shelters uh, with uh, food items for five days. But at the same time, we have what we call WFP parcel that we are able to support uh, uh, people in communities, uh, uh, 64,000 of them uh, for a period of two weeks. And we have more of the pipeline uh, coming in, in in the next couple of days. And that's why we need to, while this uh, agreement 
in place to make sure that more crossings are able to support uh, basically a scale up into the response in Gaza. Right. So 200 trucks, you say that could support 500,000 people in shelters. I think the last time we spoke to UNRWA, they said they had more than 800,000 people uh, crammed into into their shelters. And this was before uh, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, started pushing south. Um, so I'm sure that number has probably grown. So it speaks to the need. So if 200 trucks a day is able to get in, is that just for the ceasefire period, Sam, or the pause period? Or would that be going forward? And how does that compare to what used to go into Gaza in normal times? Look, compared to normal times, I think the 200 is less than 50% yeah. of a daily uh, convoys of, of trucks that were going in. Remember, this is without the commercial sector. At the moment, commercial sector is not functioning. So we're filling that huge gap. And that's why we need to, during this period, to also advocate for the commercial sector to kick in. But at the same time, yes, you, you're right. It's, it's a pause. And, and, and at the moment, uh, uh, this agreement is just looking at a four days window. We hope that those four days window will allow the, the uh, let's say, the, the stakeholders, the politicians, to do more that we can actually make sure it's more sustainable and could lead to peace because we need to make sure that uh, uh, trucks, commodities, commercial sector is able to function, that they can actually shoulder with us, especially at the, at the beginning, to make sure that all those needs uh, are covered. Alone, we will not be able to. I, I've read that because of the fuel challenges, right, the, the, the security concerns that Israel has raised about fuel supplies getting into Gaza and being used or diverted to Hamas, uh, you're looking at trying to get solar-powered baking equipment uh, into Gaza because uh, I guess you just can't get the gas to cook and the bakeries you relied on are no longer functional. I mean, what other sort of extraordinary measures do you have to take to try to, to build back up your infrastructure in there? So bread is a key staple uh, in, in Palestinian diet. So what we're trying to do is to augment that capacity that the bakeries uh, that went offline. So we, we did an assessment to look at all the bakeries needs in terms of fuel, gas, wheat, flour, water, you name it. And at the same time, while we're able to build that capacity back uh, uh, to be operational, we're looking at bringing bread from uh, across the borders from the Egyptian side as a testing and to get it moving. But at the same time, which is something I'm interested in personally, I think we, we, we're working with community-based initiatives. Uh, we're looking at who is able to actually cook from within the community or bake bread. And we're be, be giving them supplies, whether it's wheat flour or uh, salt, for example, that is needed to make sure that we can take those opportunities or initiatives to scale. Uh, the solar kitchens is something that we, we, we are assessing. Uh, we're exploring the market to see what can be allowed into Gaza. Just as a, as a final point, Samer, I, I know you say you're, you're, you're watching the negotiations between Israel and Hamas to have this pause to allow aid to go in, and, and it's probably the first hopeful sign you've had on the ability to meet some of the needs since this whole thing started. What's at stake if this falls apart? It was supposed to start today. It got delayed. And, and, you know, we've spoken to the Israeli ambassador to Canada, for example, and there is no trust that Hamas will live up to its side of the bargain. And, and it feels like this whole thing is very fragile. So what's at stake for people and your aid efforts if things go sideways? 
I, I think, David, we're on the receiving end of the news like you. We, we, we're optimistic. We need something positive. The people in Gaza need something positive. And honestly, I can tell you from with, even within my team in Gaza, they, they were very much looking forward for this uh, uh, pause in hostilities to take place today because they need to go and check on their families. They need to go and source. Now winter started. People need to buy, let's say, winter items, etc. So... Everyone in Gaza is just looking forward for this. And I think we need to stay positive. We need to see this happen and hope it will last and, and, and be the end of this 48 days of uh, crisis for them. Samer Abdel-Jabber with the World Food Program. Thanks yet again for your time today, sir. Thank you, David. The Liberals' fall economic statement released this week contains fewer spending promises than usual, but it goes big on housing, announcing new measures aimed at fixing Canada's housing crisis. First, it commits $15 billion in new loans for the construction of rental apartments, but that money doesn't start flowing until 2025. There is also an additional $1 billion to help build more affordable housing. That money also slated for 2025. The federal government is also introducing a new Canadian mortgage charter to help Canadians in mortgage trouble know their options. And they are cracking down on short-term rentals like Airbnb. For more on this, the Minister of Housing, Sean Fraser, joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. The Mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, who I know you met with recently, she said the funds for housing need to come a lot faster, and thus the plan unveiled by the Deputy Prime Minister is just not ambitious enough. How does what was announced this week meet the housing demands? Um, So I disagree with the Mayor's characterization, but I should say we've had a wonderful opportunity to work together, and I believe we're going to make serious progress, in particular on the Housing Accelerator Fund application the City of Toronto submitted to help increase the ambition from a systemic reforms point of view within the city, supported by federal funding. But specific to yesterday, uh, I struggle with the characterization that it would not be ambitious to inject an additional $15 billion into a program that's actually offering low-cost loans to get more homes built. Just last week, in fact, this program put more than a billion dollars on the table for the City of Toronto and more than $4 billion nationally that's going to create almost 12,000 new units across the country. In addition, we've demonstrated our commitment in the long term to continuing to invest in affordable housing with an additional billion dollars to support housing for low-income families, in addition to those apartments that will be for more middle-class families in the market. Uh, so there's opportunities for us to continue to demonstrate that ambition. And yesterday's, or rather this week's fall economic statement is going to help secure uh, support for the long term. But those measures don't come on stream until 2025, right? So th- 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 I think that's the criticism, not that it's $15 billion in loans, is that the loans won't be available until some point uh, two years from now. Well, look, I understand the, uh, the argument, but that fails to uh, acknowledge the fact that these programs already exist and have money in them now. The uh, proof point that I've just mentioned is literally last week we announced more than a billion dollars from this program for the City of Toronto. What yesterday's, uh, or the fall economic statement demonstrates is the fact that this money is going to be here. Developers who are looking to get building permits now, who are doing planning for their next project, know that there will be a pipeline of support. And this builds on previous measures, including the GST elimination, uh, including some of the zoning reforms we're pursuing at municipal levels. And we're locking in for the long-term certainty that there's going to be support there to keep Canada building. There's another criticism out there from Mike Moffat, who's the senior director at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Not an unfriendly voice for your government, but, you know, a pretty staunch housing advocate. He gave, gave, I think he gave you about a C grade, C plus, C minus, something like that. Because while there are 
efforts to deal with the supply issue, he feels there's not enough to deal with the demand issue, particularly with the high number of international students coming into the country and, and really creating a student housing crunch. You've got developers buying up single-family units to turn them into rental properties for students, which regular families can't compete with. What do you need to do on that? Because there's a lot of international students putting a lot of pressure on the market. Uh, look, there are, and I should say, uh, first and foremost, I have enormous respect for Mike. I think he's an intelligent and thoughtful voice when it comes to housing policy across Canada. Um, the measures outlined in the fall economic statement are not the only measures that we're moving forward with on housing. There are challenges with our temporary programs when it comes to immigration because they're driven by demand. It's not a set level as uh, is the case with our permanent residency programs. And businesses, institutions, and provincial governments have a lot to say about these programs. I do think there's an opportunity for us moving forward with a trusted partner model to reward institutions that actually provide housing for students, have a history of supporting them by giving them preferred access to study permits. And if it means that uh, certain colleges that don't have uh, a history of success, that don't provide supports or housing for their students, the old don't get, for example. Precisely. Uh, if they don't get study permits to allow their students to come uh, in a timely way or in some cases at all, depending on the nature of the institution, uh, that's something that we have to be okay with. There has to be a role for institutions to actually provide housing for students. We are looking at additional reforms that could open access to existing programs for student housing as well. I've had a number of these conversations with institutions across the country, and I think we can help scale the housing for them at the same time we implement more stringent reforms. Like the, the GST program. break, for example, is something that could apply to student housing. It, it, it does already, but there's other low-cost right. financing opportunities as well. But, but you know the situation with international students. A lot of universities, a lot of colleges to deal with funding shortfalls have gone aggressively in the international market because they can charge higher tuition, and so it's become a huge source of revenue for them, and whether they're here permanently or not, they're competing for the same housing stock. So does Canada need to look at a cap on those numbers to get these things under control, as, as, as Moffitt would suggest? Um, one of the things Canadians need to understand is the International Student Program is uh, an incredible contributor to Canada's uh, well-being. Uh, we're dealing with an injection into the economy of $25 billion in GDP every year. But more importantly, this is a pipeline of future talented Canadian citizens who are going to be educated here, work here, contribute to communities. What we need to do is make sure the institutions that are bringing them here, who are making a lot of money uh, based on those higher tuition fees, are actually making the investments to support them as well. So. I I don't know that we need to uh, insist that a cap is the right approach, but I think if we actually work to partner with institutions who provide support for people, offer an opportunity for communities and institutions to plan for the long term on the number that they're going to welcome, we can benefit from an ambitious immigration and international student program so long as institutions are supporting the students who are on. So a bit like you're using federal pressure and federal money to get zoning per, uh, regulations rewritten at the municipal level, maybe doing similar things with the access to international students to, to incentivize post secondary institutions to boost their housing stock and work on that. This sort of an approach, is that what you're thinking? Well, my, my sense is with uh, the study permit in and of itself, given the boon that institutions benefit from when they uh, welcome international students, it is a strong incentive. Of course. But if we insist that they meet certain standards when it comes to providing for the students who arrive, I think we can create a disincentive to bringing more students than a uh, college or university can actually handle. In addition, if we open up certain financing opportunities to construct more student housing, it's a great uh, thing not just for the students who come, but when students live in student residences, mm -hmm. they're not competing in the market in the communities where their institutions are located, and that cascading effect creates space in the market that will help bring costs down for everyone.
Uh, we had Don Iveson, the former mayor of Edmonton, and Jennifer Keys Matt on the show the other day. She's a former chief planner with the mm-hmm. city of Toronto. They're working on housing, as you know. Their hope is that this builds a momentum uh, and it creates an urgency. You suggested there will be more measures coming, uh, presumably in the budget in the spring, but the fiscal track we saw um, this week from Christopher Freeland doesn't show a lot of wiggle room. Uh, I mean, how ambitious can you be in, in the budget in the spring? What should Canadians expect? Well, there's a number of different uh, aspects to to my response. Uh, First is that not all of the measures that we need to put forward uh, demand enormous sums of money. Uh, We will have to continue to make investments, particularly for non-market housing, if we want to build at a pace we need to build. But look at the Rental Construction Financing Initiative, now the Apartment Construction Loan Program. Mm. This is low-cost financing that accelerates the pace of building. That money gets paid back. Look at the Canada and Mortgage Bond Program. It's tied to an program. asset because presumably the houses they build are collateral. Correct, that, right? That's right. And, and in fact, there uh, there's commitments from the builders who benefit from the program to offer the units in those buildings at and below what the market will bear. So the program brings costs down, gets repaid to government, and allows us to continue to support more housing. Similarly, when we move forward with $20 billion in uh, capitalization under the Canada Mortgage Bond Program, uh, we, we are selling insurance that takes the risk out of the equation for financial institutions who then offer lower rates in the market to builders. That's actually a program that makes a modest amount of money uh, for the federal government each year because we're selling a product. There's different things we can do. They don't all have to cost billions of dollars, but we do need to lock in long-term investments so we can make sure in the future we're not dealing with the same situation we're dealing with now. Okay. Another key thing you've done that doesn't cost money, could generate money, is the denial of tax deductions for people who own Airbnbs or VRBOs and and you get into the short-term rental market where you say you're not going to let them write off their expenses if they're not in compliance with municipal and, and provincial regulations. There's a lot of pushback on this and that it won't open up, say, the 30,000 units that, that are used for short-term rentals and, and a lot of skepticism and even a report from the Conference Board of Canada that Airbnb is citing saying that they're not the problem. They aren't affecting housing supply in a big way in Canada. What do you expect from that uh, and what do you say to the skeptics to say this, this just won't work? Well, we can point to examples where communities around the world and uh, more recently within Canada have actually adopted measures that are showing early signs of progress. Uh, The marquee example globally would probably be New York City that had 22,000-something units uh, on the uh, Airbnb market. And when they made changes to uh, crack down to free up housing supply, within a very short period of time, 19,000 of those units made their way into the market for people to to live in. Um, One of the things that is flexible that's built into the policy design is we're not doing this across the board. We're working with provincial governments and municipalities who establish sets of rules. Yeah, you'll get their back, basically. That's right. And where uh, a player in the system chooses not to abide by those rules, they're going to be denied certain tax advantages to make sure that we're not creating a a playing field that uh, advantages uh, short-term rentals for a few days here and there, rather than providing a home to the family. Uh, It's hard to predict with certainty how many of those 30-something thousand units could be freed up, but my sense is it's going to have a positive impact. There's been some criticism, though, that some people use these short-term rentals to get a little bit of extra income to help pay off their mortgage, to deal with the high cost of living, or they have a cottage that they do this with seasonally every once in a while to help offset their expenses. And it's not really, it's going to punish people who are using it to supplement their income without opening up their primary residence, because they might just use their house for a week or two here and there. 
Well, when we actually tie the measures to decisions taken by local governments, whether it's municipal or provincial governments, we have the opportunity to defer the decision-making as to what the local market needs to the government who's closest to the situation on the ground. I will trust uh, communities in my, uh, my own backyard to make decisions about what's appropriate in terms of the use of Airbnb uh, or other short-term rentals to, uh, to provide a, a tourism opportunity and a bit of an income supplement to um, uh, some, but on the flip side of that coin, deny an opportunity for a family to live in permanently. Uh, my view is I would prefer to use homes to provide uh, uh, homes for families in the long term uh, rather than to provide uh, a short-term opportunity for somebody to make a little bit of cash on the side. Housing Minister Sean Fraser, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, pleasure as always. Thanks very much. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev responded to questions today about this tweet from one of his MPs. Specifically, whether his party's decision to post a graphic resembling a most wanted poster went too far. Our call is for people to let these senators know that there should be no more carbon tax on our farmers because we already can't afford the price of food. If someone has been threatened, then they should be, then the, 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 whoever uttered that threat should be held accountable. I receive threats all the time, uh, as do uh, members of my caucus. It's terrible in, when it happens. Senator Bernadette Clement is one of the senators featured in that graphic, and she joins us now. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell me what was your reaction to, to seeing your face and, and phone number, uh, along with your colleague, posted on, on that tweet? Yeah, I remember sitting in my house. I was in my house in Cornwall, Ontario, and, and somebody actually sent it to me. Um, and I was, I was shocked, I, you know, and I, I had a, a thought that it could lead to something negative. But uh, I live in Cornwall. Uh, I was the mayor there. I've been there for decades. I feel safe there. And so I saw it and I thought, well, I don't like this. I worry, but I think it's going to be okay. But then the next morning, uh, the staff in my office, because it was the office number that, mm. that was posted on the tweet, the staff in my office started taking a lot of angry calls. And that's fine. That's what we do. We answer the phone, we take calls, we answer emails. Um, a lot of them are angry because this is, this is about people's lives and their livelihoods. So we expect that. But the anger was mounting. And then um, a call came in from someone saying that he was uh, intending to show up at my house. And that's when you know, my young staffer um, said, okay, I can't take any more of these calls. This one is scary. Right. Uh, and alerted uh, Parliamentary Protective Service, uh, alerted me. I was in my house at Cor in Cornwall at that time, so I called Cornwall Police Service. And quite frankly, second-guessing myself, right? Thinking, should I be... Uh, am I overthinking this? What's going on? But, but really, I was treated with such respect. We followed the protocol. And I have to tell you, I didn't feel safe because I'm in Cornwall. People know me. They right. know where I live. Uh, and I, I left. Well, I left. I left my house. Was a call specifically just to show up at your house or was there a threat attached with that? Or did you infer a, a threat from that? Yeah, the person was very angry. And so and, and felt like, um, you know, that there wasn't 
that 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 he needed to come to my house and and talk about this anger and and deal with his anger. Okay, but was it a, was it explicit threat, a death threat, or was it just a situation that security said you cannot afford to take this risk, so you need to go somewhere else? Security took mm-hmm. the threat very seriously, and so did the Cornwall Police Service. And yes, I felt unsafe. And and I've been a public person for a long time, three terms as a city councillor, a mayor during the pandemic. And in that moment, and I'm a woman that lives alone, and I'm proud of that. That's great. This is part of, you know, women doing their jobs, uh, living alone, living with family, whatever, whoever we are. Um, and I felt afraid. Right. And, and I, I want to just make clear, I, I, I ask those questions not in any way to minimize it. I, I just want to understand the, the specifics as, as, as well as I, I could. Have you uh, reached out to Andrew Scheer or spoken to anyone from the Conservatives about this tweet, about the impact it had? I know there was a, a, an angry encounter with Senator Don Plett uh, that Senator Plett has issued a statement taking some responsibility for and, and promising to do better. But about the, the, the tweet that kind of launched all of this, have you had any conversation, response or anything? with the people behind it? So, in chamber today, uh, Senator Plett did apologize just a few minutes ago Mm -hmm. um, for what happened in chamber after I moved to uh, adjourn the debate, which was a a routine procedure and was done to allow for senators in, in my group, the independent senators group, to be able to continue debate this week. Um, so that's that's the contact that I've had. I posted on social media myself to address what happens when you go online um, and you post incomplete information, you post things that will foment anger. I posted on my own social media to address my own integrity. I was being accused of delay tactics. I was being accused of being the fix was in was one of one of another tweet. Um, So accused of being the ISG leadership being in in cahoots somehow um, around this. And so I felt the need to go online to say that um, and to address the fact that this tweet had gone on and that we had it had led to this. And I've said in the chamber and and today that I know that the people posting those tweets or retweeting those tweets were, did not intend for me to feel unsafe, did not want this to happen to me. What I wanted to do when I stood up in chamber this week was to break the silence. I wasn't Mm. going to talk about those events that happened uh, after I adjourned the debate. I wasn't going to talk about that. I just wanted to get back to work. So, Senator, yeah. I, I'm just wondering, I, I just wondered because we're just getting a bit tight on time, what you're doing now. I, I saw in the reporting, I believe, by my colleague J.P. Tasker, you're carrying a panic button with you, uh, which is something. Are, are you able to go home? Is it safe Wait. for you to go home, or, or are you staying here in Ottawa where you might be harder to find? Uh, so we all have panic buttons. That, mm. that was all. Those were issued some time ago. I, quite frankly, didn't have it with me when I was in Cornwall during the non-sitting week. I haven't felt 
the need to have it on me. I do have it on me now. I have had it on me uh, since that call. And so, yes, I'm feeling like the calls have, uh, right. there are fewer calls. And so I feel better. But what I wanted to do uh, when I stood up in chamber was talk about this and talk about how we should reflect on how we speak to each other in chamber and also online right. to talk about the fact that, you know, this idea of politics being angry all the time doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. Yes, this, this bill has an impact on people's lives and yes, people can have feelings around that, but let's think about how we speak to each other mm. when we're doing politics and debating and trying to get through and let's think about how we speak to each other and how we post online. Senator Bernadette Clement, I, I want to thank you uh, for speaking with me today, and uh, please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev faced some questions today about his reference to the Rainbow Bridge car explosion as a terrorist attack yesterday during question period in the House of Commons. Here's his exchange from today with a reporter from the Canadian press. Do you think it was responsible for you to call yesterday's explosion by the customs, uh, by the checkpoint at the Rainbow Bridge terrorism when no U.S. or Canadian officials said that was, the or authorities said that was the case, and when the New York governor also said there was no evidence to suggest terrorism activity? Actually, you're wrong. Are you a CP? Okay, so CP, by the way, CP, just for everyone's knowledge, did have to make three corrections for falsehoods that they put into a single article. I think that might be unprecedented. Um, I'm actually thinking about checking with the Guinness Book of World Records to see if there's ever been a news agency that has had to issue three corrections for patent falsehoods that they admit they had been made in one single article and now you've made yet another falsehood in your question. Um, um, where you are wrong is that CTV reported that the government of Canada was presuming that the incident was terrorist. So. Yeah, that was, and that's what I said in my remarks. You're right. It was a media report. But it's citing media reports and not... Which is what I said. In the House, I said there are media reports. And you think that's a responsible thing to go on, to make that kind of a, a statement at the time without speaking to... What kind of statement? Calling something terrorism. I didn't. I said there were media reports. That's the distinction we're making, okay? No, there's no distinction. What I said and I was right, was that there were media reports of a terror-related event. By your admission, there were media reports of a terror-related event. And that media report, according to CTV, unless you're questioning their integrity now, came from security officials in the Trudeau government. So do you think the CTV was irresponsible in putting out that tweet? Do you think it was a responsible comment to make in the house? Do, do you, sorry, I'm asking, I, I've already answered that. Do you, do you think CTV was irresponsible to put that tweet out? Okay, this, for the record, is what Mr. Polyev did say in question period yesterday at 2.25 p.m. Eastern Time. Mr. Speaker, we've just heard media reports of a terrorist attack, an explosion at the Niagara crossing of the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, two people, at least two people are dead, one is injured. It is the principal responsibility of government to protect the people. Can the Prime Minister give us an update on what he knows? Okay, that happened at 225 
yesterday. Today, the CTV tweet that Mr. Polyev said he was referring to, national security sources tell CTV News that government officials are operating under the assumption that the incident at the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls is terror-related. That was not posted. This was not reported until 2.40 p.m., 15 minutes after Mr. Polyev's comments in the House of Commons. All right, we want to talk about this with the Power Panel for a couple of reasons, so let's bring them in now. Supriya Devetti is the Director of Policy at McGill's Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy. James Moore is a Senior Advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative Cabinet Minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP Cabinet Minister, now Chief of Government Relations at the University of Toronto. And Shachi Curl is the President of the Angus Reid Institute. All right, gang, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. So, Supriya, when watching Question Period yesterday, there was a lot of reasons to ask the government if this was a terrorism attack, what it could have possibly been, because people were obviously very concerned about this. But there was no CTV report uh, upon which to base the media reports. The only reporting at that time had been American, primarily Fox News. What do you make of what happened here today with the way Mr. Polyev responded to these questions? Um, I think it's clear that the leader of the opposition was wrong, and instead of owning up to it like a leader should, uh, he doubled down, and we have a clear timeline of events, as you just clearly showed, as to when CTV would have first uh, have put up that tweet or would have first put up that story online, and you know what other uh, American outlets, to your point, primarily Fox, as well as a bunch of far-right influencers and right-wing online reactionaries who like to cosplay as serious journalists, were all making this out to be a terror attack, and. I don't understand why um, you can't just say that's where you got it from. Um, you know, conservatives in the past have very readily gone on Fox News. So clearly they don't have a problem with it. So why not just say that's where you got it from? Uh, if you look at who Mr. Polyev or, you know, who other high-ranking conservatives um, currently follow, a bunch of them are the far-right influencers that I've just uh, referred to. Why not just admit it? I think this was a real moment um, showing the Canadian people the kind of leader that Mr. Polyev would be if he was actually put in charge. And it's, it's kind of frightening. And, you know, the conservatives can make all of the overproduced slick ads of him as a down-to-earth, everyday family man that they want. But, you know, that doesn't really change who the conservative leader fundamentally is. And he is a terminally online, reactionary, right-wing bro who will do and say anything so long as he can dunk on libs in the process. We saw that with his comment calling the prime minister a Marxist, um, his references to radical gender ideology, and, uh, you know, his constant demonization of, of the free press. The, the last thing I'll say, though, is that this is clearly not a bug um, of his leadership style. This is a feature. He is hoping um, that, you know, other folks who care more about dunking on libs and drinking right. leftist tears um, is going to be more important than your regular everyday Canadians who are looking to meet and ends meet. James, uh, what, what do you make of what we saw there? The, the sort of the, um, the the aggression towards the Canadian press reporter and the belittling of, of the Canadian press, and then grabbing on to a, a CTV report that that couldn't have been the basis for his question uh, because of the the clear timeline of when it rolled out. Well, there are two things I'm reminded of. I believe it was Mark Twain who said, you know, it's it's a bad idea to get involved in fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. Now, media in today's world is, doesn't quite have this, the reach and the esteem and sort of the consensus of audience that existed in the past. But I think in general, it's it's probably not a great long-term strategy to get in fight with the news media. However, Pierre does actually make a very important, I think, macro point here, which is it wasn't that long ago 
that media across the world, not just Fox News, but the New York Times, Canadian news outlets and others said that Israel blew up a hospital in Gaza and they were wrong. But for 36 hours, a wrong news story out there about a very important global event resulted in the firebombing of synagogues, resulted in a rise of anti-Semitism, resulted in a rise of anti-Israel uh, anger that led to riots in, in cities around the world. So the media, as Ben Bradley said, is the first rough draft of history. And boy, is it rough sometimes. My phone was lit up like every was yesterday like a Christmas tree with news reports and breaking news, borders shutting down, you know, something happened, there's some kind of explosion at the border. And, and, and everybody's mind, including a lot of newsrooms, I think, went to that this is the possibility of a terrorist attack. What, what Pierre said there in the House of Commons, asking the Prime Minister if he can update the House and update Canadians, was an entirely reasonable thing. Yep. In, the, in, the, in the long term, though, I think at the end of the day, I think it's not prime ministerial to be in a constant... Uh, stance of uh, acrimony and a fighting posture with the media. Uh, I think that's a mistake. But but the media is not infallible here, and they were the mistakes were made yesterday. They were repeated by a lot of people, including Pierre. And I think that that's a mistake. Uh, I think that he should own up to, and I think that he does. And and I think I think um, the media also have, have to recognize that the responsibility that they have to get these stories right because they do have a long consequence. Well, yeah, there's there's no disagreement there, right? And and, and you know, uh, Andrew, he went after the Canadian press, which had to publish corrections uh, on, on a story they wrote about Mr. Polyev. But we know that because they published correct and owned up to their mistake, like a credible news organization, like we do at the CBC, on our webpage, when we make a mistake and have to correct it, because we are infallible. But the, 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 the chaos and the heat of the moment was yesterday, not today, when he was asked about it, and, and this is still what happened. What's your take on it, Andrew? Yes, well, I mean, first of all, you know, the question itself seemed innocuous enough at the time, and I think that that, you know, that should be just taken as as it was. I mean, I think there were a lot of people wondering whether it was a terrorist attack. Is it responsible for him to have said so? I think he couched it in a way that uh, you know deferred to the media on that. The problem is twofold. One, the the Tories have had a history lately of bringing up issues that uh, have a particular partisan lens to them. Uh, in terms of the uh, the question, there's this. There was the uh, bizarre situation with voting down, uh, voting against the uh, Ukraine uh, support uh, free trade bill the other day, claiming it had something to do with the carbon tax, which is ridiculous. There was the uh, aspersions they cast about the prime minister's intelligence uh, on the India assassination. Uh, all of these seem like they come with a particular political ideology, a partisan ideology to them, as opposed to being you know, questions in the interests of you know Canadian concerns. And so there, there is this kind of pattern of behavior. It's easy enough in each of those cases to go, they're working off of something, it ended up being wrong, and simply to walk it back. I mean, politicians have to do that sometimes. The display today, though, really was quite something. And it, 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 you know, it, it will have a political consequence, I think, on, on both sides. What you're seeing is you know, the, the mask slipping, not just slipping, it's thrown away. I mean, all that money the Tories spent on advertising around this guy, I mean, we, we all know somebody like this. Um, you know, it is a personality type. He is who he is, apparently. Uh, you know, this kind of argumentative uh, uh, individual. And I just don't know how that is serving them when they're trying to portray this other image. What you saw, though, and, and certainly we heard from Supriya today, is that the liberals see this as a great opportunity to jump on this and start to define again what Polyev is. There was polling this last week done by Abacus that showed that really about a quarter of the population. Uh, who are going to vote Liberal or vote NDP really don't feel all that concerned one way or the other if it's a Conservative government. 
Liberals and NDP voters need to get angry about the Conservatives in order to toughen up that response, in order to drive their vote back up. And so you're going to see this response, both to the Conservatives saying, oh, it's nothing to look at, we don't care, the media is the enemy, all those kind of right-wing kind of issues that they bring forward. And you're going to have the Liberals pouncing in particular because they need something, anything at this point to try to redefine Polyev. Shachi, I, I, I wonder, the, uh, you know, the, the question yesterday, there were media reports, uh, mostly from the U.S., that it could have been terrorism. Fox emphatically said it was terrorism. The car was packed with explosives, which turned out not to be true. Uh, but what happened, it wasn't CTV, which is what he claimed today. Also on the Ukraine free trade vote that, that Andrew referenced, they, they're saying this is imposing a carbon tax on Ukraine, which Ukraine says is not true. I mean, they've given a statement to the Globe and Mail, uh, you, Canada cannot impose conditions on a foreign country. It's just not the way it works. Do these issues of, of false claims, are, are these the sort of things that create trouble uh, for Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives? Well, they certainly have the potential to create all kinds of trouble. It's never as, hey, we're, we're starting to, to come to the final uh, weeks of, of the NFL football season. It is never too early to start blowing a lead. Pierre Polyev has a 14-point lead over the Liberals, but that has so much to do with fatigue with the particular Prime Minister of the day, fatigue with the government of the day. It is not reflective of some warm and fuzzy feelings, gaga feelings, that Canadians have towards Pierre Polyev. What is he doing at the moment? I mean, I think that is the question. Andrew and Supriya posit that, that this is deliberate, that he is who he is, and, and he can't help being this way, and he doesn't want to help being this way. I can tell you that if that is the case, it's going to be highly problematic. I do want to come back uh, just briefly, though, to, to what happened yesterday. Um, you know, it was not inappropriate or unreasonable at all for Pierre Polyev to get up in the house had he asked, hey, there's this really serious thing happening at the border. There's reports of an explosion. What can the prime minister tell us? The prime minister told us what he could, then breathlessly announced he needed to leave the house to get further briefing. The actual star of the show yesterday, in terms of being measured, not taking the bait, and not speculating, was Dominic LeBlanc, who actually, in a scrum, said, I'm not going to talk about something that may be completely different in 30 minutes. That is the kind of reporting and reflecting through a breaking news or an evolving situation that we need to hear from our politicians. I, I hope this also provokes a bit of a day of reckoning in newsrooms uh, around what they report, their use of unnamed sources, and also their, you know, networks will put uh, so-called experts up in the moments after this to talk about, oh, well, we're going to get this security expert on. And now a security expert without a lot of pushing back or, or, or uh, really hard questioning is, is throwing ideas out there around uh, self-radicalization and cells and chatter. These are the trigger words. These are the trigger words that plant ideas in the heads of Canadians at a time, you know, when we are in a very fragile place around the cohesion of our society. James made a reference to that. Uh, things are very raw right now. At best, the thing that we can do is not make it worse. I say that as a former working journalist in a newsroom who had to you know, uh, navigate sure. their way through reporting things and also for our politicians. 
they know what they're doing when they say the things that they say. They also know what they're doing when they don't say things. And this is really a time across the spectrum for everyone to button up and not make it worse. Right. But, but, Supriya, like I, I, I saw, I watched the the report uh, from CTV yesterday, and it was you. When an incident like this happens, you start with the assumption that it's intentional and it's terrorism, and then you work your way back from there so that you get to a hardened posture. You respond to it. It was counterterrorism in the United States. It didn't say it was terrorism. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that reporting because they they place it in proper context, and we did it as well when we also got the same level of information. So I, I don't think there's a jump to conclusion that I saw on any of the live broadcasts uh, of Canadian news, and I'm not, I didn't watch every second of every network, but uh, I didn't see a lot of that. I only saw it in the United States and on some of the fringe media. But to turn around and attack the Canadian press today and blame CTV today, uh, it, 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 it just sort of continues the, the fight against the mainstream media, tries to undermine the, the reputations of people who, in this particular case, did nothing wrong. Yeah, and I think I just want to like reiterate Sachi's point there because the actual question was perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Like I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Um, it's the behavior afterwards and the doubling down that I think has got a lot of people raising an, an eyebrow at this. And and I think you know to Andrew's point, bringing up the uh, conservative opposition to the Ukrainian free trade deal, um, I would just point out that again, when you're talking about online information ecosystems and where people get their news and how the international uh, right wing as if you like I, I don't mean to lump it all into one group but if you're looking at folks like Nigel Farage or like Donald Trump um, then like they are very pro-Russia not so warm on Ukraine and increasingly you're seeing uh, a little bit of those fissures happening in Canada and it's very unfortunate um, for all sorts of reasons um, th but I would say the most of which is that it's it's we should be able to stand um by ourselves as canadians recognizing that ukrainian canadians are a very large diaspora community and they should feel supported um by all of our political parties and we've even had polling recently to show that out of all of the uh, partisan affiliations conservatives are the least likely to support ukraine right now and it's and it's very worrying when you see the kind of disinformation that originates in other you know jurisdictions find its way into the canadian um discourse okay we're, we're tight on time james i want to give you the final word and then i gotta take a break I mean, I guess lessons will be learned from today, um, you know, but look, you know, I, I think uh, with regard to the news media, I, it can be frustrating having been a politician in the spotlight where you're surrounded by people who have made a lot of mistakes in their journalistic careers of, in good faith, not bad faith. And then, you know, giving you no inch of room whatsoever and ch chastising you from uh, a position up on Mount Pius, it can get very yeah. frustrating. I think there's a the unfortunate thing is there's an economic incentive to be first when you're in the media. But but there's a moral and ethical incentive to be correct. And, and I think those things often get lost and politics can fall into that trap as well. Uh, you're, you're dead right. And, and, and we all do need to remember that it's human beings operating in a human system that we're interacting with, which is why when we're called fake news or dishonest or biased or partisan or other terrible things, uh, it, it's equally difficult uh, on this side of that relationship. But uh, we've got to leave it there. Thanks to the Power Panel. Supriya Devetti, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, Shachi Curl. Thanks so much, gang. See you next Thursday.
That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.